Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the Radar to me means authenticity, not being filtered. It's a window in on the local stories that touch our lives. And there's a huge void in the traditional media covering this new faces of Boston. You may not be looking for a particular story, but when you hear about it, you're engaged. Under the radar means ahead of the curve. It's also perspectives. How does this particular story affect a community or a neighborhood? I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, 2020 is just over the horizon, but the 2019 city council election is around the corner and heating up fast. An iconic figure is retiring from South End neighborhood, its mailman of 32 years. And how is Massachusetts spending its settlement money from the Volkswagen emission scandal? It's our local news roundtable. Later in the show, never underestimate the staying power of pink. Prosecco Rosé is sure to throw the pink wine craze into an even greater frenzy in 2019. We think of Prosecco as, you know, a very fun, delightful Italian sparkling wine. It's also, typical of Italian wines, extremely, extremely controlled. So when they make changes to what is Prosecco, that's big. Our food and wine gurus are back to wrap up the year with a few of the hottest culinary trends. But first, joining me in the studio, Jennifer Smith, news editor of the Dorchester Reporter. Welcome, Jennifer. Hi, Callie. Hi. Um, Gin Dumchus, Boston-based reporter for MassLive.com. Welcome, Gin. Thank you. And Seth Daniel, senior reporter with the Independent News Group, which includes the Chelsea Record and Revere Journal. Hi. Hello, Callie. I'm starting with you, Seth, because okay. this is a bad story about um, the Orchard Gardens um, School, um, which is fighting an epidemic, well, it's really the op opioid epidemic mm -hmm. or the remnants of there of around sure. the school grounds. Yep. It's horrible. It is horrible. It's it's unspeakable. It's unbelievable. When I first heard it months ago. Um, so the Orchard Gardens is on Albany Street and Melnia Cass Boulevard. And it's um, unfortunately, uh, it's found its geography puts it right in the center of the opiate epidemic on Mass Cass, where it seems to be the worst in the state, probably the region. So what ends up happening is they have a schoolyard and it's behind the school and it's very convenient for people who are hanging out there, which there are many, many, many uh, individuals in all seasons, even in the winter. And so they end up camping out back there and uh, there's a lot of dangerous things like needles. And uh, I began hearing about this um, last summer, if, you, if not even last spring, because they were asking for a kiosk so that the janitor could put needles in there every day, right? And wow. kids unfortunately, were getting stuck, particularly when the leaves fell. Uh, the school nurse told me um, when she spoke to me that, um, you know, in most schoolyards, when the leaves fall, it's fun, the kids get to play. She said, at ours, it's dangerous. And that's because there are needles under them. Um, a, a child was stuck in October, uh, had to go through the, um, the anti-HIV uh, um, mm. protocols with medication and stuff. Uh, you know, they do all kinds of uh, things. You know, there are people, um, the homeless encampments have taken over their playground, so they have no playground to really go to because it's kind of dangerous. You have adults who are under the influence hanging around and doing all sorts of things back there. Um, it, it was unbelievable that it was happening. They had asked for help. They got some, then the help went away, and then and they were all alone. Um, so they had come 
uh, to the meetings that we follow um, in the South End about uh, the opiate epidemic, and uh, people were shocked, and I was shocked. Mm. Um, and they were kind of going through it alone. It looks like they're going to get some help. We brought some attention to it. Some others um, also um, had some stories later on that. And, and it looks like it got people's attention. Um, it's a police matter. It's a school matter. It, but it's really like a human being matter. Mm. I mean, these are children, and they're having to avoid um, needles. They actually, you know, when you walk into a school and there's nice pictures of yeah. student artwork, well, they have on their um, little board a place uh, where they talk about the protocols for finding a needle. Wow. Yeah. So what kind of help will they get? Uh, well, it, um, the, the, the biggest concern is actually the needles that are there, and there are scores of them all the time. Um, and they're going to get the, uh, the crew that goes around picking up needles, the, the needle brigade is what I call them. Mm -hmm. um, so they, the Sharps team is the official name. And, and they go around um, all over the South End in, in that particular area and actually all over the city. Um, but they're going to really concentrate. Supposedly, they're going to do a sweep every day. Um, mm -hmm. I guess they've promised that in the past and it didn't happen. Mm -hmm. Now they're going to do it. Um, you know, it got caught up in the red tape. The janitor would call for or the nurse would call for a needle to be picked up. And they'd say, well, is it on city property or school property? Oh, my God. Yeah. And they say, if it's on school property, you have to do it. And she's like, I'll just do it. Mm -hmm. But it began to be too much. You mm -hmm. know? Yeah, I was really haunted by some of the uh, specifics in yes. the story as well, where they were saying, you know, just in part of where the placement of the homeless encampments was as well, that they've had three dead bodies on their campus yeah, that they've had to cover up. With mm -hmm. tarps. These are overdoses. Yeah. Overdoses, mm -hmm. yes, of yeah. course. It's so so just that kind of, and also you know, um, eating from the school gardens. So yeah. even even the they students took the that, tomatoes, that yeah. yeah, exactly, mm -hmm. the students that kind of wanted to go out there and work on gardens, like mm -hmm. they weren't getting to eat the food that they were growing. So it's just. Yeah, and then the the student that was uh, drawing um, a picture of like a thing that could be done to help the school, and it was a kid yeah. stuck like a pincushion full of needles, yes. just saying maybe we could not be stuck with needles all the time. I mean, I was I was and blown this away. This is an by elementary it. school. I just want yeah, to be so K eight school, yeah, yeah. right, so that people understand that this how horrific this is. And it's also uh -huh. the the schoolyard is basically brand new. It's only about ten ten years old. It's beautiful back mm -hmm. there, but they can't use it. Yeah, well, they're going to have to probably do something about the people who are sort of um, by default taking over the space as mm. well. That sounds like a police matter. Is, yeah, it's is a great any... question. Yeah. Yes. Well, the, the school yeah. officials, right, basically on top of identifying needles, kind of now also have had the responsibility of literally shooing away yeah. adults out of the out of the schoolyard. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's true. Which it's, is very uh, much and not their job. This is jobs. going on all over that area, yeah. too. Mm -hmm. It's just that this is kids and not businesses and other things like that. It's a great question for the whole area. Yeah, that, oh my God, that's so terrible for those little children. I just, yeah, anyway, mm -hmm. I just, all right, well, that, it's a great story, but it's a, it's a horrible yeah. thought to think about. Uh, Jennifer, some people might think this is a horrible thought to think about, <laughs> is that already um, there is uh, interest in the city council race. I, I mean, I was actually quite surprised by this. Coming up. <laughs> yeah, and you got a lot of names in your story. Yeah, well, even just and and there's more. I mean, we just needed to do a preliminary rundown of who had filed with OCPF, distinctly indicating that they would run because, of course, as everyone that covers politics knows, plenty of people do show up and say, "I'm going to run for something," and then never really follow through. So at least you can 
sort of whittle it down in the early days by who seems to be opening up their their campaign accounts. And what is OCPDF? So the way? it's the Office of uh, Campaign, campaign and, and Political Finance. Political Finance. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, so mm-hmm. basically, you know, when you're starting to fundraise, mm-hmm. when you're accepting accepting donations, you have to, of course, file with the state to to let people know where the money's going and where it's coming from. Mm-hmm. So yeah, when we are looking ahead, obviously, as we know, Ayanna Presley is not long for the city council. She's moving up to Washington mm-hmm. on January 3rd. And Althea Garrison is going to be filling in her seat for at least that one year. It's likely since... Uh, well, when you say one year, you mean to the end of her term. Till the end of her term, yes. Which is in... So it would be the next the next year. So okay. they'd have to go through the normal okay. election cycle, right. for instance. Basically, it's mm-hmm. just that um, Ayanna Presley is serving, you know, the the one year of her two year term, and then Althea is coming in for the second half of Got it. it. Okay. But so the other three at large candidates, uh, Michael Flaherty, Michelle Wu, and uh, Anissa Sivy George, they're all running again for reelection. But, I mean, you're looking at the prospect of a seat that's wide open. It's been filled since, you know, 2010 by Ayana, mm-hmm. basically. And uh, you're already getting a decent amount of interest. So I'm going to pull up my list of them. So someone actually got in very, very early. You got a big boost after um, Ayana unseated Michael Capuano mm-hmm. in the primary. And people realized the seat was probably going to come up. But one who is Amanda Smart of Brighton mm-hmm. actually uh, opened up her office uh, opened up her campaign account back in January, hmm. and she's still active, and she's a disabilities advocate. Hmm. Um, then you've got Julia Meja, who was born in the Dominican Republic uh, and was the founder of the Collaborative Parent Leadership Action Network, so she's also in there. And then um, David Halbert, who's the deputy director of community affairs at the Middlesex Sheriff's Office, is also in the running. And then rounding out just the ones who have filed as of the end of November, um, Alejandra St. Julian of West Roxbury, um, who is the director of Mayor Walsh's uh, Office for Immigrant Advancement. So they're all seeking the at-large race mm. just now. And that's not the only city council race that's going to start heating up. Probably Tim McCarthy in District 5 looks like he's probably going to see three challengers mm. um, at least. Wow. Exactly. And you've got some interest in District 9, which is where Mark Siomo is. And then it's possible that um, uh, Josh Zakem may still see a challenge, even though he didn't successfully unseat Bill Galvin. So it's... It's it's a lot for for 2019. I know everyone kind kind of tends to tune out municipal election years, but it's a busy one. What? Go, go I was going to say, part of the reason I think a lot of them are opening up these accounts now is because they get two bites of the fundraising apple, right? Yes. They mm-hmm. they start, they 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 can fundraise one cycle through the end of December, mm-hmm. and then a new cycle uh, starts in January. So mm-hmm. basically, you can hit the same person for the max donation twice. Okay. Um, so that, that's that, the $1,000 cap. Yes, I yeah. believe so. So it's 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 one of those things where, where from a tactical perspective, it does make sense that if you're going to be running for city council, um, you want to open that. Uh, campaign account as soon as possible um, before the end of the year. Uh, the other thing is uh, these four at-large seats. Uh, voters voters can can vote among all the candidates. It doesn't have. Right. I mean, it's it's uh you know Michael Flaherty and and the other incumbents. Um, just because they're on the ballot doesn't necessarily mean they're gonna, they're going to be reelected. Right. right. They still have yeah. to run again. Right. They still have to run again. And the other thing is you can you can do bullet votes. You can you can mm-hmm. only go you can go in there and you can only vote for one person f- for one person mm-hmm. if you wanted to, um, or vote for two people. You mm-hmm. can vote up to four, but you don't have to vote for all uh, for all four mm-hmm. slots. Mm-hmm. 
So well, yeah. the thing about the money is uh, if you're going to take advantage, as you said, by before the end of the year, you must have some loyal supporters because I don't I don't see your small donor donations at this point, you know, chiming in maybe after they get to know you. And of that list that you just named, mm -hmm. the only name that I really know is Alejandra. Mm -hmm. um, and she, ha you know, is pretty well known now. She, she used to be head of Oeste. Yep. And then right now she's in the mayor's office of... Uh, immigrant settlement or something like that yeah, um, yeah and yeah. so and she again is yeah. the most recent of right. the of the filers so I'm sure we're probably gonna see a few more before the end of the year comes down um, there are already some other names being floated around but they just haven't again just gotten into the OCPF part of it yet yeah. so I mean but this is crazy. a lot. Oh, it's like yeah. wild yeah. speculation. Um, the highest number of possible names that I've heard so far is 19. Wow. So it's not likely that we're going to have a full 19 running, but there were 19 names at one point that were considering just the at-large race. So. You, any names you hear, Seth? No, I mean, she, I think she mentioned all the ones that I, I've, mm -hmm. I've come across. Mm -hmm. um, the the you did mention in the uh, in Josh Zakem's district, mm -hmm. there's a, a woman who's um, been very active there. I think her name is Helene, Hel Helene Vincent. Yeah, mm -hmm. and um, I mean she's been going to all the parties and she's taking wow. a, a um, an approach to focus on younger people and and she does this social media effort where she highlights a young person every day and what they're doing and why they're going wow. to vote. Mm -hmm. um, so she's she's really been on the trail. I was I've been uh, I haven't met her yet. But yeah, yeah, yeah. We've been watching her. And is he vulnerable? Um, that's a good question. Some, you know, there was a community activist from the Fenway who ran against him last time, Kristen Mobilia, and she did well, but, but he just, um, he's well liked, mm -hmm. you know, in that district. It'll be hard, but hey, anything's possible, right? Yeah. Okay. Well, um, <laughs> good for you, Jennifer. You're out in front with this. Uh, yeah. Well, the Bay uh, State Banner had a really good rundown early before, uh, the last bunch of them filed. And so there, there's, there's a, there's a good, a good bunch of folks that are keeping an eye on the list. Okay. Um, I want to talk about this money that we get back, um, again from Volkswagen. Remind people why we're getting it back. So Volkswagen, what, what, there was this uh, emission scandal uh, a couple of years ago where they basically installed software to cheat um, how much uh, uh, emissions uh, the cars were releasing. And, um, you know, I, I know this, this is kind of faded from the headlines, but we're still living with the fallout. Uh, I believe in where I live now in Weymouth, uh, one of the, one of the, the uh, was it Union Point? The Union Point neighborhood is actually storing a good number of those cars. So if hmm. you go down through there, you just see row, row after row of VW cars. Um, and what uh, so so VW did, you know, they acknowledged they did this. Uh, the Justice Department and a number of states came to a settlement with the company, um, multi-billion dollar settlement. And Massachusetts is getting 75 million out of it. And they have about a 15 year, 10 to 15 year window to spend it all. And. The first, um, the the first couple of million that uh, are getting spent uh, this year or, or the following year in, in this in this budget cycle, and Martha's Vineyard and the Pioneer Valley uh, Transit Authority, the two um, public transit agencies for for those areas, they're getting electric buses, um, and there's a number of other like um, uh, programs that are getting funded. Um, I think we remember during one of the gubernatorial debates, uh, Charlie Baker said um, that fighting climate change is going to be one of the key things about his second term that he expects to be uh, an incredibly big deal and a big priority. And uh, this is uh, some funding to uh, to accomplish that. 
Um, I also just want to point out, sometimes Maura Healy gets a lot of flack from people like, why she keeps suing people? I mean, she, <laughs> right. this is a result of suing. I mean, it she is, sued yeah. to get this money back. Um, yeah. So I just want to point out that, okay, here's why. Mm-hmm. It came back to the state, and that's quite a lot of money. Yeah, it, it feels appropriate, too, yeah. obviously, that the um, the areas that we're looking for for initial spending, too, are directly related to climate change, since obviously the, the money itself was coming from a misreporting of emissions. Feels this, right. <laughs> and this is also, it shows, like, this is why regulation matter. This is why uh, uh, state agencies and federal agencies matter when they do their jobs, uh, is to to make it right with, uh, you know, v, VW was scamming the public. Yeah. Um, they were they were selling, I think, as, as uh, Healy said, dirty old cars. Yeah. And, um, you know, for, for, for us to be getting money is, is huge, especially to fight something like uh, a big threat like climate change. Well, and also elect- buses, electrify electric bus. I mean, I think that's we're all moving to the future with this. So, so uh, Jennifer's right. Looking at you know, we took dirty, well, not dirty money, but <laughs> money that, that right. made cars dirty <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to go do something yeah. um, that's uh, positive in the future. So I. You know, hey, good and at for the us. same time, on the mm. federal level, we're all talking about the the Green New Deal that right. um, a bunch of the uh, enthusiastic new freshmen are are pushing for, uh, as far as basically investing in infrastructure going forward that's specifically oriented toward climate change. And yeah, yeah. And I think so. the the most recent federal report um, that came out, uh, all the agencies came together. They said the Northeast is particularly vulnerable yeah. to climate change because yeah. of. Uh, how old our housing stock is, yes. and given where the population is clustered, it is on it is on the coast. All right. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me are local journalists Jennifer Smith, Gin Doomchus, and Seth Daniel, and we're discussing all the greater Boston news you may have missed. Now, a number of you sent in some cannabis stories, some marijuana stories. I must admit, I'm now drowning in it. I was complaining in my newsroom for year, for like weeks. When are they going to say somebody got something? Okay, now I'm so done. <laughs> See, you brought this on yourself, though. That's the thing. Like, what is happening? Um, again, I'll let you start off because there is a forum. Uh, by the time this airs, they, people will have talked about, you know, some of their concerns um, because of now all the openings happening across the state for the pot shops. Sure. So this yeah. is something that uh, the Cannabis Control uh, Commission, a mem- uh, one of the members, Britt McBride, um, is spearheading this. And it's basically gathering city and town officials uh, to demystify the process of um, how do we work with this new industry that is that is still maturing. It's still on its way. It ha- it's not fully uh, grown yet, but it will. And uh, a number of cities and towns, their moratoriums are co- coming to an end at the end of the year. Uh, we're also about to hit town meeting season. We're like all that. I know jazz hands from from Denver there. <laughs> yes. Um, so so we're we're uh, we're hitting that period uh, where city and town officials have to be thinking about okay, if if we are going to do this thing, if we are going to go ahead and and let marijuana businesses, whether it's a retail shop, a cultivation facility, or a product manufacturing facility, um, how do we approach that and how do we handle it? And uh, this forum is uh, at the Social Law Library at um, John Adams Courthouse. Um, is hoping to uh, basically demystify a lot of that. Um, and then, uh, Jennifer, you have a whole slew of stories about so much happening. <laughs> um, one is about Tito Jackson, former city councilor, um, who is heading up a company that seems to be about to locate a pot dispensary in the neighborhood. Um, but also, you had a lengthy conversation with city council president Andrea Campbell, mm-hmm. and she's concerned about equity, which is an issue that keeps getting bounced around in terms of who gets 
the licenses and the pot shop uh, business. And we're not, it's not equitable equitable at this point it's all a lot of big businesses yeah mm. yeah one of the one of the big things and um uh this is timely because the city council just had a hearing uh Mm. the other week on specifically equity in the marijuana industry because the concern is that a lot of the folks that are kind of working their way through the process through the system and getting into say the second round of of approvals they're almost None of them are people of color. Mm. Um, and then you've also got not that many of them that are also residents of of the of the city as well. So there's a lot of concern that if the city isn't paying attention and isn't being engaged, uh, we could basically end up with a marijuana industry in Boston that doesn't really look like Boston. And so one of the things that uh, Councillor Campbell as well or as... Or doesn't benefit Bostonians. Or doesn't benefit Bostonians, yes. mm-hmm. specifically the mm-hmm. areas that have been very detrimentally impacted by mm-hmm. overzealous prosecutions from the war on drugs and also, of course, just dealing with the kind of collateral from the sort of underbelly market of of uh, the illegal drug trade. So what you have basically is this attempt to say, can we give priority to local applicants? Can we give priority to people of color? But on top of that, there's this fundamental issue that they're all kind of dealing with right now, which is there's still a lot of skepticism about the industry. Yes, it's legal. Yes, most of Boston voted for it. But specifically in areas like Mattapan, where Tito Jackson is proposing a shop and there's another... And we should say he's a per- per- person of color. Person of color. Remember. Exactly. Yes. yes. Uh-huh. Um, so mm-hmm. he was He was mm-hmm. the... There's no longer a black man on the city council, actually, mm-hmm. now that Tito Jackson is no longer on there. Um, and so he's proposing a shop in Mattapan. Um, another uh, group run by people of color is proposing one about 0.7 miles away. So there's clearly interest there, but I've been to a bunch of these meetings and the concern is, again, very much rooted in the idea that people are kind of uncomfortable still with the idea of just selling drugs, even though they're legal. So uh, one thing that Councillor Campbell brought up specifically is so much of their time now in these meetings is just educating people Mm. about the business itself. Um, So it's kind of interesting. They voted for it, but at the same time, they didn't really think it was going to end up near them. Mm, Interesting. Um, Speaking of of, uh, locations near them, Seth, you have a very, for me, depressing story. Oh, wow, Uh, (laughs) too. Well, no, the first one is, you know, has all those details. But this one is about the the Harriet Tubman House, which is really known as the United South End Settlements, which has been a part of the South End for I don't know how many years. 125. Yeah, there you go. Um, (laughs) About to sell its its iconic location. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's not the original Tubman House, but it's the one that we all know because it's on the corner of Mass Ave in Columbus. It's very visible, has nice murals on it. Um, Most everyone has been past it. Um, But it's also about a three-minute walk to Symphony Hall, and um, USES is one of the nonprofits in the South End. There used to be many, many, many of them. And, uh, you know, they're in the red. They're trying to recover. They changed their mission a little bit, focused in on uh, families a little more. And now, um, you know, they got this great building in a great location that needs a lot of work. And uh, they're going to, they put an RFP out. They're going to sell it. And um, it's a way for them to really refocus their, um, their efforts, you know, and, uh, and get out of the red and, and start, start kind of start anew. Where will they go? So they have another property right around the corner on Rutland Street. It's mm-hmm. much smaller and it's more historic. It's mm-hmm. one of the original settlement houses. Um, so they're going to put the money into that and they're going to operate out of there. Um, 
Obviously, they have some talking to do with the neighbors mm. um, there because it's going to be a major expansion. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, that's what they're going to do. They're going to kind of consolidate and um, and run out of there from now on. And uh, there'll be a developer probably who who um, comes up with a plan to to take over that. Uh, it's like a twenty twenty three thousand square foot lot. You know, right right in the heart of very hot real estate. So a couple things. First of all, when we say get out of the red, people mm. need to understand that any property in that neighborhood yes. is so expensive. Yes. So they'll be getting out of the red and then some mm. because yeah, it exactly. is going to sell yeah. for a lot of money. Yeah, and they had mm. a lot, looking at a lot of costs to repair the actual building that's there now because it was in disrepair. It's not that old, but it just needed a lot of work and, you know, they want to put money into their mission, not into their building. Um, that's their argument. Which makes sense. Yeah. You know, it makes sense. But not everybody is agreeing with that. No, <laughs> I understand. Because I'm about to go to the next Good. part of that, which is um, with the sale, then you have to be concerned about what goes in there. Mm -hmm. I mean, I live in Cambridge. Harvard Square is one big bank. Yep. <laughs> I mean, you know, really, I, are there that many people who need to spread their money around? And, <laughs> and so I, I just... You cannot, it can barely go past a little, you know, local mom and pop show before there's another bank. Mm -hmm. It's just, yeah. and I have nothing against banks per se, but yeah. really? Yeah, banks <laughs> and real estate offices, there's a lot of complaints yeah. about that. Um, you know, that's, uh, this particular one is uh, zoned for probably something retail on the bottom. Could be a bank, could be anything. And then I think they can go up to 70 feet. Um, so, you know, I think you're looking at residential there. Um, it, but they, they're asking that any developer come up with some sort of major community benefit that would be in line with what their mission is, too. Are they keeping an eye located. on the design of it? Yep. Like, are they, they basically yeah, saying they it has to be control. reflective yeah. of, of what's already kind of well, there? Well, that's good. They're kind of taking full control of it. The board will make their decision based on all the submissions they get. And they have no timeline, but maybe sometime this year or sometime next year. Uh, at this time, they'll know. Well, well you know. all have all written, um, you know, over the years about um, these spaces that go away. And even with in a situation where there's some control over it, mm -hmm. it changes the nature of the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not saying that's particularly a bad thing, but it's going to. Are people talking about that stuff? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Um, there's a, I mean, it is a hub. It was it had elderly programs, children programs. It had. A lot of things. There was a lot of activity there. People coming, coming in and out for um, services and uh, meetings and all sorts of things. City and, council at large debates, I believe. Yeah, they had yeah, debates there. Right. They have yeah. public meetings all the time there. Um, but uh, you know, I mean, if it's if it's a residential um, building, nobody's going to be going in there but people who live there. Right. So that sort of will cut that down a lot. And there's also the nonprofit community there that's that's left. You know, yeah. that's saying, hey, you know. We got to all work together. You know, we can't just, um, you know, abandon each other. There's been some flack on that. There's a save the Tubman House movement wow. afoot already. One thing that's really been striking me, actually, in a few developments, Callie jogged my memory on this one, um, is a few developments, including, for instance, down near the Ashmont area, there's a former church that's going to be redeveloped mm. into a mixed use um, parcel. And then, you know, the former Boston Globe site is going to become right. this, this, it's uh, all commercial and, and lab space and stuff. But one thing that's been coming up in a lot of these new builds is a requirement for community space. So, for instance, the uh, former church lot down in Ashmont 
will be keeping a, a section of its of its uh, site there for the church community to still mm-hmm. use if they want to, but also maybe offering the opportunity for them to run it as like a cafe and mm-hmm. basically bring in revenue when they're not doing services there. Um, the Globe site is expected to allow community meetings to happen in there. So I think that what's been coming about, especially in recent years, is this understanding that community benefit doesn't just mean giving money to local community groups, but actually physically ensuring that there's still a space for the community right. to gather mm-hmm. because that's also in short supply, just physical space. Well, let me put a button on this since I was slightly smarmy about banks just earlier. <laughs> um, Eastern Bank has community space and its bank in sure. its facilities. I mean, yep. that's right. part of their mission, just to have space for the, mm-hmm. where they're located, the people there can meet there. And I, I think that's that's a way that you can be both commercial and have a space, as you said, for the community. All right, now, I don't need to spend a whole lot of time on this, but it upsets me. Jamaica Plain is going to <laughs> try to ban winter space saving. You know, really, people. Well, they've already done it in the gym. South End. The South End has already done it. I know. I think yeah. it's bad. Yeah. I, I just. I'm you just, like the cones? Well, I just think. You know, I say this every year. I've said this to the mayor personally. If I have dug out of a space yeah. and you come take it, really, I am not going to be happy. I happen to be with you on that. You know. <laughs> you know so I don't know how to deal with it. Look, you again as a suggestion. <laughs> well, I would say ad- Ken looks the most moderate of uh, all of us on this yeah. one. Well, I, w- I would say advocates would probably say it's 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 a public it's a public way, and uh, you know, putting cones and putting things that like you know say like this is That's mine true. is not it's not necessarily encouraging you know public use it's uh i know in southie it's get it gets really bad i, I know uh, too that's because uh, you're trying to <laughs> yeah. get a space i dug yeah. out i feel them no, no. <laughs> i think the thing that always you know? gets me about the the logic of if i dug it out then it's mine it all it kind of assumes that if you'd waited 20 minutes someone else wouldn't have also come and dug it out it's mm-hmm. kind of the like first come first serve yeah. nature of it that makes me a little bit nervous but i will say dorchester's holding the line on well, space yeah. savers what worries me is the escalation usually because yeah. i think if you go to universal hub sometimes uh, oh. after storms you can see just like someone leaves a nasty note they scratch like something right. into a person's yeah uh, that's you know. true so yeah. that the escalation is the thing that that kind of uh um that can be stopped. Yeah, Leave I... people's spaces alone. But I'm just saying, <laughs> Allie. The, the, most, the most fun thing is to load up, load up the family and cruise around and see all the unique things people have used: barbecue grills, it's a particular beds, Boston thing, it's lawnmowers. lawnmowers. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Right on my spot, on my street, there's a bunch of people that put out really nice antique chairs to, wow. to hold their spaces. I don't know if they're trying to guilt people into don't mess with it. Like this is a beautiful space. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, but I feel them. That's all I'm saying. Now, something that. <laughs> has not been a part of Boston, but is about to be axe throwing, urban axes. Yes, help me with this. So, so uh, <laughs> this this opened in in uh, Somerville. Uh, my colleague Kristen Lafrada was there. She's been she's been uh, tracking this um, axe throwing and liquor, and you you would think that does not mix. <laughs> yes, um, and they they don't have their liquor license. Uh, uh, Kristen reported not yet, but um, apparently, and and this is this was new to me. Uh, they, they it's very regulated. They there is a person standing next to you mm-hmm. when you're throwing the axe. Um, and servers, the servers there have been uh, trained to, you know, handle situations uh, that might get out of control or whatever. And the, and there's no booze allowed in the axe throwing area. So, so. you say, let's take a listen to Krista, <laughs> Krista Payton, owner of Urban Axis, speaking with WCVB. 
We really wanted to bring the joy of axe throwing to the city, and uh, Somerville just felt like it had the right vibe. Um, it's a little bit uh, into more like funky things, artsy things. Mm -hmm. well, so <laughs> I like that you could hear the thwack of an axe behind yeah. her as that yeah. happens. Yeah. I mean, it's my, it's not my thing, definitely. You know, same 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 like marijuana, not my thing, but I do find it fascinating. You know, it's, uh... Well, I just want to say. Um, that, that people are already know this about me. I watch a lot of reality TV because I need, you know, just to decompress. So I first learned about this trend on a Real Housewives show. <laughs> were, the, <laughs> were the housewives were throwing yes, axes? They were. Well, that's really dangerous. Yes. Wow. yes, yes, they were. Yes. That's that's, that's dangerous. I thought it you was too. You know what too. news you can use from yeah. the Real Housewives? <laughs> I try to be up on everything for you. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Kelly. Um, Seth, I'm really excited about um, your retiring mailman in the oh, South yes. End. I love these kinds of stories. Yep. Um, this guy worked for a long time, and he was honored um, by his neighborhood because yeah. of the the length yes. of service. Yeah, Chris Costaris. He's yeah. he's been the uh, mailman there for 32.5 years. He's very exact about that. But he also grew up in the South End and uh, and um, knows everybody and everything. He's a you know he's a legend. He takes his lunch on the bench. People sit with him. Uh, you know when he goes into a store to deliver the mail, they'll post on social media. Chris is here, but uh, you know he's retired. He still lives in the South End. Um, Union Park, the neighborhood association, honored him for for their holiday party and uh, and also the other letter carrier too, Joe Giordano. They're both. You know, they're legends, you know. <laughs> and Joe's sort of taking over for him? or uh, Well, they, yeah. they have separate routes, mm -hmm. but, but he's continuing, mm -hmm. and uh, he's going to, you know, keep the vibe going. And, and I guess Chris isn't going anywhere, though. He's going to be around. Oh, well, I just like to raise up people like that who've, you know, been there. I thought it was very sweet in the story. It said um, when he started, uh, a child came out and gave him a Christmas card, and now the the that child has grown and her child came out to give him a Christmas Aww. card because yeah. he's been doing this for so long. So that's just really sweet. And, and, and can I just shout yeah. out the Postal Service for, I, I feel like sometimes we have to zoom out and realize just what an incredible uh, and, and difficult job it is. I mean, this, mm -hmm. is, this is an entire country and they, and they work hard, they get it done, um, not always with a lot of uh, praise. And uh, especially heading into the holiday season, it's going to be, it's, it's, a, it's a rough couple of weeks for them. So just in general, the Postal Service is an amazing uh, agency. Well, you don't have to tell that to me. Uh, my father was not a letter carrier. My uncle was for many, many, many years, but my father worked at the post office for most of his life. So I have a great amount of appreciation. Hey, put food on the table, put me through school. There you go. <laughs> yeah. So I have a great amount of appreciation for the U.S. Postal Service, and I will be there tomorrow to mail my packages. <laughs> all right, let's leave it there. Holidays. Then. Yeah. <laughs> I thank you all for joining me. Happy holidays to you. Happy, Happy holidays, Kelly. <laughs> um, and um, with that, Jennifer Smith, news editor of the Dorchester Reporter, Gen Dubchis, Boston-based reporter for MassLive.com, and Seth Daniels, senior reporter with the Independent News Group, which includes the Chelsea Record and Revere Journal. Coming up, an early prediction for 2019. Pink wine will still be all the rage. Eats of Eastern Europe are the latest foods to hit the streets of Boston. And the curious case of a prolific wine bandit is stumping New Hampshire police. Our food and wine insiders are back to dish some of our favorite tasty trends. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley.
I'm Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanya. That's Creole for something extra. Prosecco Rosé is driving the pink wine craze into the new year. Eastern European bites are the next big thing, with Polish offerings cropping up in Boston and Somerville. And we love our wine here at Under the Radar, but we've got nothing on a woman currently wanted for swiping $5,000 worth of bottles from a New Hampshire liquor store. It's our end-of-the-year food and wine wrap-up. Here with me in the studio are our culinary connoisseurs, Jonathan Alsop, founder and executive director of the Boston Wine School and author of The Wine Lover's Devotional. Welcome back. Thank you, Callie. <laughs> and Amy Traverso, food editor at Yankee Magazine, co-host of WGBH Weekends with Yankee and author of The Apple Lover's Cookbook. Hello again, Amy. Hello. <laughs> All right, let's just get started. Um, I am really interested in the uh, Eastern food bites. We are covering the globe these days, Amy, with yes. all kind of food. And how did Eastern Europe and pierogies and all that come yeah. to be popular? I'm, I'm starting to think of pierogies as sort of the donuts of the savory world. It's <laughs> okay. sort of that that uh, very comforting, carb-heavy thing that you want an excuse to eat. And so if you make it a food trend, it's like, oh, well, I have to eat pierogi because I need to be current. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. The Eastern European, you know, we sort of had a big Middle Eastern uptick for several years, and it's still going strong, thank goodness. And now I feel, what's next? Well, I think it's going to be Eastern Europe. Um, there's a great cookbook that that was sort of a, a, a flag uh, in the ground called Polska, which mm. um, beautifully, it's a gorgeous cookbook. Um, and and I'm seeing stuff popping up all over Boston. Um, there's uh, Zsazhu, the um, Polish a pierogi shop, which is at the mm. Bow Street Market in Somerville, which is a new uh, the Bow Market, sorry, yeah. in in Union Square. It's a really cool new indie food pop up uh, food court market. Um, and then there's uh, well, obviously there's a lot of great. There's been a lot of great Polish food for a long time in uh, Dorchester. There's Cafe Polonia and the Baltic Deli and Euromart. Um, there's some really great pop ups happening right now. There's Spoko, uh, which is a Polish street food pop up. So they do events at. Um, at breweries, hmm. if you can, Kate, you can have them cater, and they specialize in 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 pierogi and other delicious stuff. Oh, and people are really embracing it. They so, really are. Yeah, okay, very yeah. good. And it goes great with beer, so it really goes with the microbrewery. Oh, okay, that's that, that's that's helpful. Well, my sister, my my, uh, my sister lives in Pittsburgh, and this is a place where when you go out for breakfast, you know they'll say. You know, you want pierogi with that? Nice. It's like two eggs over easy, bacon, pierogi. I mean, yeah, it's it's a it's a when you talk about it being a savory donut, it's absolutely yeah, I mean, oh, it's absolutely true, and it's very used like that. Yeah. All right, well, over to you, Jonathan. Mm. You've got some wine from Patagonia yes, I that do. I do not know about. Well, so mm. this is a Pinot Noir mm -hmm. from uh, Schroeder Estates in Argentina. Um, don't see a lot of Pinot Noir from the Southern Hemisphere. Um, Pinot Noir tends to tends to like it a little cooler, not not quite as sunny. So you don't see a ton. Don't see a ton of Pinot Noir from Australia. Don't see a ton of Pinot Noir from South America. But you know, Callie, this is one of the things that I love about the wine life is, you know, you think you've drunk all the Pinot Noirs. You think you've tasted wow. all mm -hmm. of the different versions of Pinot Noir, all of the different personalities of Pinot Noir. And now we find this, um, this family, this Schroeder family, growing Pinot Noir in Argentina, but in Patagonia. 
Hmm. Way, way southern Argentina, um, super high altitude, super cold climate. And so now... It's delicious. And so now we've got this new sort of... Um, you, you think about the Pinot Noirs that are coming out of California these days. We could think of those as warm climate, hot climate uh, Pinot Noir. And this is um, much, more of a, much more of a cold climate. Um, much more of a cold climate, much, much lighter in color. Delicious. Lighter in color, some more delicate, uh, some more delicate flavors. Price point, please. Price point? 18. Okay. All right. Okay. So solid Pinot Noir, yeah. but... Mm-hmm. Um, Very delicious. And in a new place. I love it. I'm loving all this new stuff. Yeah. How cold is it? I mean, yeah. how, is it, yeah. how does it compare to here in terms of the climate? How does it compare with here? Well, you know, well I mean, Patagonia is um, glacial. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's, it's got, well, there's got some glacial. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, how does it compare with today? Right. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's very. I mean, it's very far. I mean, it's very far south. Um, uh, very again, very cold, very glacial, kind of wow. alpine. Maybe that um, bodes well for New England Pinot Noir. <laughs> yeah, in twenty yeah, years. Yeah. Uh, well, you know. All right, over to you, Amy. There's some new uh, food awards from Yankee Magazine, and you, yes. you're bringing us a little a little flavor. Yeah. So all year round, I'm kind of scanning the marketplace for artisan foods being made all over New England because it's not just restaurants that make New England such a good place to eat. It's also the producers who make the cheeses, and we are one of the top cheese producing cheese award winning cheese producers in the country, if not the world. You always say so, that. So, yeah, yeah we're, we're big. So there's lots of great stuff being made. So the first thing I want you to taste is this incredible jam mm. from a woman named oh. V. Smiley. Mm. Um, she lives in Vermont, but she studied cooking in Seattle, worked at some of the top restaurants mm. out there, and learned how to make jam. And she actually had a food sensitivity where she couldn't eat sugar. The only sh- uh, sweetener she mm. can have is honey. So she learned how to make beautiful preserves Ooh, with honey. Yummy. Aren't they good? Mm-hmm. It's very good. So she moved home to Vermont. Her family's a farm. She's growing the fruit. She's making the jam, mm. using the local honey. I love this stuff. It tastes like summer in a bottle. Mm. It's. I think with jams, the trick is to cook it to the point where it sets, but not where it tastes that overcooked yeah. kind of dull flavor. This is vibrant and bright. I love that stuff. Oh, it's yummy. So mm. this is one of our winners this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, another one we did is Runamuck Maple, which is based mm. up in Vermont. Um, young couple. It smells so good. Isn't it great? So they're tapping, they're, they're taking maple syrup and then they're infusing mm. it with flavors. There's uh, cinnamon, they, wow. they do barrel aged <laughs> syrups, they're doing all kinds of cool stuff. This one is cardamom, and I thought it was. People, this is so yummy. Isn't that great? <laughs> now, I made it for ginger mm. the first, the yeah. first mm. sniff. Well, cardamom, that I, I feel like, is sort of cinnamon crossed mm. with ginger. Okay. You know, it's got that floral mm-hmm. um, quality that ginger has. And it's an unexpected combo. You usually think of warm spices like cinnamon with maple syrup. Like if you've had French toast, this mm. is so nice. Great over yogurt, pancakes, even in a cocktail. It's mm. delicious. I'm putting this on some French toast. <laughs> yes, seriously. Mm. Oh my god. Really, really Ooh, good. Run a muck maple, yeah. and it's available even in Whole Foods. They've got great mm. distribution. Mm. The V Smile pre- Smiley preserves. You can find them in stores, but you can also order it online. And then the last product I wanted to highlight, which is also very local, is Somerville chocolate. This is oh. Eric Parks. He's trained as an architect, but had this passion for chocolate to the point where not only does he, like, you know, many chocolatiers take chocolate and make stuff with it. He actually takes the beans and makes chocolate, chocolate from the it. beans. Oh, he wow. works out of the Aeronaut Brewery Complex. Mm-hmm. And that is a smoke, mm. has a smoky mm, element good. to it. Isn't it delicious? Mm. And I just, I love what he's doing. I think 
his his texture's great, the flavor's great. Mm. He's doing really interesting stuff. So that's one to watch out for. The packaging is also stunning and it makes a really nice gift. Well, these are all very delicious and, you know, right in the farm to table um, whole vibe, which I love. Yes. I love local mm. also. Yes. I like to support local um, yes. vendors. Mm. And obviously, a woman in New Hampshire likes to, too. Ah, well, support is debatable. What, what a beautiful way. What a beautiful way to celebrate the holidays and end the year. Yes. Um, a report in that the weekend, the weekend before Thanksgiving and the weekend after Thanksgiving, apparently a woman went into the um, um, I-93 hooks it um, New Hampshire State Liquor Store. And between her two visits, stole $5,000 worth of wine. We can't figure out how that is possible. Well, you know, this is so, so we have. I mean, is, is this really news? I mean, we have yes. a we have a we have a long history of robbing liquor stores in America. It's, it's happened before. Not five thousand dollars worth. But, well, what makes and what makes this interesting is, you know, it wasn't really too long ago where. You couldn't steal $5,000 worth of wine out of a New Hampshire oh, okay. state liquor store. I mean, that's that's how how many even <clears throat> we're, we're still trying to figure out how she did this anyway. I mean, at $50 a bottle, that's a hundred bottles. That's what I was saying. I was you, saying this to Franny, my producer. We were trying you, to add how many bottles did you have to get to And how 5, did you get 000? them? Right, and did you how, strap them around your body <laughs> or park them? And, how, and, and going back and forth but out to the noise. parking They're lot. Heavy. You make noise. I'm really, really <laughs> curious. First of all, a celebration of... Um, Wine. Uh, of wine. <laughs> you know, wine has reached a point now where it's a target. You know, so so yay for that. Um, but, you know, the other thing we're really trying to figure out is how in the Jesus. world... How in the, how in the world I mean, it is do you a fairly impersonal experience shopping at those liquor stores? It's not like there's a salesperson guiding you through the I'm experience. Sorry, but five thousand right. dollars. I know it's still a lot. It's yeah. still a lot. Yeah, even well, if you go for like two hundred and fifty dollar yes. bottles, that's a lot. So we're yeah. gonna assume that Here, in the so. five thousand dollar catch, she also had prosecco rose. <laughs> well, are we, are so, we assuming oh, that? Well, so no, so I get, and I guess the public service announcement is they're still looking for this woman. Yeah. Okay, so if you have any friends. Who like used to drink two buck chuck, and all of a sudden they're drinking like fifty hundred dollar bottles of wine. You want to get in touch with the uh, New Hampshire State uh, uh, New Hampshire State liquor uh, liquor store. Yeah, so, yeah. So they're looking hear. for looking for help. So keep an eye out. All right, prosecco rosé was <laughs> yes. that part of her her stealing? Do we think? But it's it's, well, it's, it's leading the, the continuing the craze. You know, Nobody believes that that rosé is hanging on. When will when will rosé stop? I mean, this is you know rosé is is you know the story of 2008 I know and and it's and it's shaping up to be the story of 2009 as well um you know prosecco you is 2019 I'm sorry what what did I what so did I say 1998 yes I know what you meant okay um but prosecco you know we we think of prosecco as you know a very a very fun um, and it is. It's a fun, it's delight, uh, delightful Italian sparkling wine. It's also typical of Italian wines, extremely, extremely controlled. Controlled geographically, controlled mm. in terms of the grapes, controlled in terms of agricultural processes. Um, so when they make changes to what is Prosecco, um, that's big. 
And one of the things that's, that's happened that we're going to start seeing next year for the first time in history is a Prosecco Rosé. Same price point because it's pretty inexpensive I'm now. Certain, I'm, certain it yeah. will be, I'm certain it will be at the, same, um, at the same price point. I'm sure that's what people are expecting. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's going to be, you know, you love Prosecco, you love Rosé. Um, if you think no one is listening to your prayers, um, they, <laughs> they, they have. You ha- they have been. This is what people have been pray- praying for is a rosé prosecco. And that's so going to be next year. Rosé. Rosé. You know, again, it's continuing to push this incredible, incredible growth in um, rosé in yeah. the wine market. So, can't wait to try it. So more of that. All right. So these food carts are at upscale restaurants, yeah. Amy. So as if I'm not lazy enough. <laughs> <laughs> okay. When I go to a restaurant, I'm really digging this trend where the food comes to me and I don't even have to look at a menu. <laughs> Okay. So, okay. So, okay. Troquet on South has a a really beautiful seafood cart, um, a champagne cart, and Mm. a cheese cart. Mm. Um, La Brasa. Have you guys been to La Brasa in Mm -mm. Somerville? Oh Mm -mm. my God. They come around every night with this prime rib. Mm. I mean, truly the most delicious prime rib I've ever Mm. had. And they slice it for you by the ounce. You can just get a little taste. It is amazing, and that is wow. a super fun cart. Um, Les Valier has long had its famous cheese cart, mm. which is beautiful. Il Casale in Belmont, they do a grappa cart, so they come wow. around wow. and give you some hot stuff. Um, and Sarma in Somerville, also, they don't use a cart, but they do have mm. and come around with kind of mise that are fresh from the kitchen, and you it's kind of like dim sum where you can choose. And, of course, there are many fabulous dim sum restaurants all in Chinatown, but also all over. So I, I like that this the dim sum idea of bringing the food to the table because it allows you to be spontaneous and and just kind of use your eyes because obviously a menu is just words with a, with the mm-hmm. cart so you can actually see what you're getting and wow. it makes it fun and celebratory. That is so interesting. I, I mean, yeah. and, and I, I obviously it's doing well. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's definitely catching on, and it's I think it's a fun trend. I think it makes it's another thing that makes dining out special as mm. opposed to. Ordering in a lot of restaurants right, have have right. jumped on the delivery bandwagon yeah. for you know necessary reasons, but this is a reason to get there to the restaurant. Okay, um, one of the trends that you noted for 2018, Jonathan, um, was one that is actually uh, stagnation with regard to wine. You yeah. say vintage stagnation, and that mm. it's leveled up. That wine consumption has leveled off. Yes, despite our you know rosé craze and stealing of five thousand dollars worth of wine, it's <laughs> overall consumption has dropped, which I find amazing. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. According to um, uh, Silicon Valley Silicon Valley Bank, um, which is an organization that has absolutely no desire to see this reality, so you know it must be true, mm-hmm. um, when they're tracking uh, America's wine consumption over the last 20 or 30 years, uh, uh, last 20 or 30 years, um, U.S. wine consumption in terms of what they call total volume growth um, not just total volume, but how much it's growing each year. Um, it looks like it's leveled off. It looks like it's leveled wow. off. And one of the things that they're starting to to <clears throat> uh, one of the ways that they're explaining this is one people's interest in uh, craft spirits, people's interest in oh, craft, craft beer, cocktails, craft brews, craft pierogi. They don't go even, with wine. And I don't know if we'll yeah. talk about this later, but yeah. even the emerging the emerging retail cannabis market right. is oh. all 
um, it, it 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 seems to be it seems to be um, uh, filling up the curve with other products. Mm-hmm. But now wine appears, at least in these initial studies, or at least in these long-term studies, to have reached its cruising altitude. Hmm. That 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 if you want to know how much how how much of a wine nation is America? I mean, we haven't had this conversation hmm. in a, in a long, long time. But mm-hmm. you know, it used to be this conversation: is America a beer nation, or yes. is America a wine nation? This might be giving us a little indication of uh, how how much of a wine nation hmm. is America. And, um, you know, where does the growth in the wine market um, stop? Hmm. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and my guests are culinary gurus, Amy Traverso and Jonathan Alsop, and we're savoring a few of our favorite end-of-the-year food and wine trends. Um, quick, what's your favorite wine for the holidays? My, well, my favorite wine for the holidays is... Um, my wife's favorite wine for okay. the holidays. All right, that's a wise choice. <laughs> yes, what is it? Uh, she's a big she's a big Chateau Neuf du Pape fan. Okay. So anything from anything from the Southern Rhone, Chateau Neuf du Pape, a little town called Rostow. Okay. Um, any of these Cote de Rhones, really great and a uh, good food wine blends too. and fantastic, fantastic yeah. with all with all with all kinds of food. Okay. So, your best food for the holiday? Yeah, two things. Uh, my family tradition uh, are these uh, malfati, which are kind mm-hmm. of like um, uh, they're they're little dumplings. They're ricotta and spinach dumplings mm-hmm. that you make with flour and and eggs. So they hold together, and you boil them like a like a pasta, and then you serve them with sauce. So that it's never Christmas without that. I also am going to be doing a really beautiful slow roasted, very very low mm. and slow roasted tenderloin, mm. beef tenderloin. You and so the, the the trick to this is you roast it very slow. You do not sear it, and then you sear it at the end. So it's evenly red throughout, hmm. like bright pink throughout, and then you get that beautiful sear at the end, and it's mm. just the perfect way. A lot of re- cookbooks or recipes will tell you to sear it first right. and then yeah. roast it. This is much better, but you need to budget the time because you're cooking at a very low temp for much longer, right. for but hours. that perfect, mm. juicy, even, oh, oh my God, so good. I would mm. so totally eat that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you're welcome wouldn't, to come wouldn't over. <laughs> wouldn't we all? All right, real quick, you have uh, heated igloos. Um, yes. Amy. This is a really fun, I don't know, <laughs> I'm, so, so there's it's this way that New Englanders are extending the outdoor uh, bar season. So there are these plastic igloos. They're clear plastic, and they're popping up. Um, Lock Fifty is a place uh, in the Boston area that's doing it. Um, uh, and and they're they're lit up with LED lights. Uh, look, and you see them. I saw some down near Faneuil Hall the other night. Um, they're the thing I feel bad about, though, is the servers who have to go from igloo to oh, igloo. They're, right. they're the ones who are outside. You're sitting in a heated little plastic thing. But they're the ones who are like, oh carrying God. drinks in the frigid temperatures. <laughs> so so if you go check out one of these igloo bars, tip really, really well. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my God. Okay. I think it's just a cure for cabin fever. I like, guess so. Igloo, igloo bar. I'm, yeah. write, I'm, I'm okay. writing that down. Yeah. All right. Uh, so, Jonathan, um, you've gathered all of the wines we tasted in 2018. Yes. and made it possible for us to um to for everybody who's listening to get them all on yes. the website um regularly because you made a link now bostonwineschool.com under the radar. Yes. So yeah, bostonwineschool.com slash under the radar. Yeah. That'll take you to a Boston Wine School Wine Club page. Mm-hmm. And you know, 
Callie, after after we're on the radio, after we talk, I get so many emails and texts and Facebook messages from people who, you know, they listen to us talk about the wine or they're behind the wheel of their car. They yes. couldn't write it down. Now, all of the wines that we taste are going to be in one place, bostonwineschool.com slash under the radar. Nice. And you can go there and find <clears throat> find these different wines. You can order them. Um, you can you can you can pick them up at Boston Wine School headquarters in Sharon. You can have them delivered to your mm-hmm. home or office, um, just just like it's the 21st century. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> oh, I love it. And man. not too. So now you can now you can be drinking at home the same things that we're drinking on the air and enjoying here. So. And 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 you know have the price point on it too as well, so that you know it's along the way. I try to make sure we we talk about it, but sometimes we get caught up in whatever. I also want to make sure that I don't let the year. Uh, end without my pointing out that you had to agree that a certain wine that you used to tell yeah. me was terrible yes. is really good. That, you know, you, you, you've <laughs> because changed. I'm not mature, so I want to hear it again. You've cha- <laughs> Callie, 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 you've changed me. You've changed me. When, I'll, I'll admit it. When we met, I was not much of a Pinotage fan, but thanks to your relentless... Advocacy. <laughs> That's how you yes, want. Yes, advocacy. Let's it's go with advocacy. Let's go, yes. let's go with that. Yes. <laughs> but thanks to your thanks to your encouragement. Yes. Um, I am. I'm a. I'm a. I'm a Pinotage fan. There you go. And um, I'm open to it. So there thank you. you. Thank All you, right. Callie. Well, a great way to end. Thank you both for a year of fabulous insights around food and wine, and I look forward to 2019. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Jonathan Alsop is the founder and executive director of the Boston Wine School, and Amy Traverso is food editor at Yankee Magazine, co-host of WGBH's Weekends with Yankee. That's it for this edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Join us next Sunday at 6 p.m. for the stories you may have missed. In the meantime, you can find our show, links to stories we discussed today, and bonus content on the web at wgbh.org news. Listen to our show on the WGBH app and take UTR with you. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Be sure to connect with us on social media. Follow me on Twitter at Callie Crossley and like us at Facebook.com slash Under the Radar WGBH. Our engineer is Doug Sugarts. Francisca Monahan is our producer. Under the Radar is a production of WGBH.